Welcome everyone to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast where we talk about all things haunted, all things Hollywood. Uh, today we're coming back in with our second season of spookiness. Ooh. Ooh, even though we're on like season four. We're like on season like six. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. But our next yeah. season, <laughs> uh, the next season into the future of spookiness. Uh, we're going to come in strong with a little murder surprise because everyone likes murder and surprises. Right? Like this thing. <laughs> I just got surprised just now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I don't know who wants to go first. Um, I'm okay with going first. Mine's really short. Um, I kept mine short because I knew we we're going to do a whole bunch of stories tonight. We're all doing one. Yeah, mine's short too. So good. Awesome. Cool. I don't know who wants to go first. I'll go first. I don't care. Um, do you want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> we, can go go first. we can go chronological if you want to. Oh, God. Uh, this is embarrassing. So. <laughs> What you kidding? That's <laughs> fine. What what's your year? Mine is 2014. So oh, geez, well, yeah. Uh, okay, see so wait when I'm sorry, but when you said chronological, I just thought of my age. So oh. how narcissistic <laughs> is that? That's oh. why I was like, this is embarrassing. <laughs> That's why I was like, that. wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. See where my mind goes these days? Sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> well, Anyhow. That's funny. That's like 46 so you know <laughs> chronological yeah i mean we could it's up to you guys uh mine's uh 57 57 okay mine's 1930s okay teresa what, what about you oh, okay i'm 1993 my story starts so hey, roxana oh, pat teresa me Unless we want to go in reverse chronological, <laughs> then I'll be first. Oh I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can Whatever you want. Oh, I don't, me? Oh, I make the decisions? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> All right, Roxana's first then. Okay. So uh, the surprise is it's not about a murder. What? What? Originally, I was going to do something about a murder, but the more I investigated, the more I realized that a lot of the legend didn't have anything to really back it up. Um, so I decided to do something that had a little bit more uh, hmm, facts to it, I guess. Not really, that it could be backed up. There were substantial claims to it. Um, so I think, but the thing was, there's no murder, but there's ghosts and Hollywood. Ooh, so it's about haunted Hollywood, literally. Uh, my uh, topic tonight is going to be about Boris Karloff and his haunted rose garden. Ooh. Yes, unfortunately, no murder. Sorry. Ghosts! Yay! Yay for ghosts! Actually died, I guess you know. It yeah. was it was natural causes. Uh, so 
Boris Karloff is kind of well known for his role as Frankenstein's monster in the movie Frankenstein, which came out in 1931. And there's also kind of an interesting story about Boris Karloff and how he got his uh, big break here in Hollywood. Um, he was born as the youngest of 10 children. Let's just stop and reflect on a woman that has given birth to 10 children. <laughs> I am the youngest of eight. Who? who? I am you the are? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So. Oh my God. I, I didn't realize that. Technically, my mom only had four kids. Oh. My dad was married before. My dad is the youngest of nine, and my mom is like the youngest of six. Okay. Oh, so they're yeah. big families. Yeah. But I was only raised with my one sister. So, you know. Oh, well, that's, that's different than being raised with 10 or nine other children, you know? Yeah. Pat's got, Pat's got a lot of them. I'm, a I'm, lot of I'm, a, I'm one of six uh, outside oh. of dad's secret. Okay. Yeah. So Boris Karloff, that wasn't his original name. He was born in 1887 as William Henry Pratt. Uh, he kind of never really wanted to be a big movie star. He just enjoyed acting and kind of wanted to be able to have a career being able to act not necessarily be like a big old hollywood star but the thing was he wasn't also the best actor so he moved out to canada in 1909 uh, he would work as a day laborer and then he would find acting roles on the side but he kind of had trouble remembering his lines and his cues. Uh, he would stumble over furniture and mumble his lines, which is kind of ironic because when I talk about his first breakout role, you're like, he's perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but you know what? He, he never let that get him down. He was still going to try to be an actor and he was going to do whatever he needed to do to do that. Uh, he met his wife, Dorothy, while he was kind of working on his acting in the theater, which is a great place to build your acting skills. Um, and then in 1918, he moved to Los Angeles and he was kind of doing the same thing here that he was doing up in Canada. He would be a day laborer uh, and then try to get whatever acting jobs that he, he would be able to do. So he was uh, an extra in silent films. Um, extras are like background actors in a silent film. So you didn't have to worry about lines, you know. Um, and then he would also do some character work in those silent films as well. Uh, oh, sorry, he didn't meet his wife, Dorothy, at, at the time of the theater, I apologize. He met another wife, he got divorced a couple of times and then he finally met Dorothy. Uh, these men, they keep getting married and divorced. Bella Lugosi was married and divorced five times. Whoa, wow. Oh, anyways, okay, back to Boris Karloff. Um, in 1930, he did perform on Broadway. Uh, he was playing a convict turned killer. Uh, he also appeared in uh, Criminal Code in 1931. Also, in 1931, he was working on the Universal lot 
and he was eating lunch at the Universal Studio Cafe, and James Whale approached him and asked if he would like to screen test for a certain character. This would be the monster from Frankenstein. Hugh Boris Karloff was not the first pick for this role. I just mentioned Bella Lugosi. The reason why I thought of him was because Bella Lugosi was supposed to be the one who played Frankenstein's monster. Bella Lugosi had just come off of doing Dracula, which was a, a success also in 1931. He was offered the role as Frankenstein's monster. And, you know, Bella Lugosi was a trained theatrical actor. Uh, he didn't like the fact that this particular role didn't have any lines in it. It was going to be a, pretty much a silent role, just grunts and everything. And then he also didn't like that the majority of it was going to be based on makeup that was going to be done to him. He wanted to be able to act the scene and he was going to do his own makeup. So he, he did his own makeup. And he did his portrayal of the monster and it was not received well by the studio executives. They did not find his monster scary. They found his monster humorous. <laughs> and Lugosi got upset and is uh, known to have said, well, I, you know, I quit and you can get uh, an extra can play this part. So then that's when they went out and they were looking for you know, extras, because Bella Lugosi was working at Universal as uh, an extra on some of their Western films. And then that's when James Whale approached him. And, you know, Boris Karloff took it. To him, it was just going to be kind of just another role that he had been doing. He, you know, never really expected this to be a huge breakout role. But it launched his career. And from there, he was uh, asked to play the, the, the mummy in Universal's movie, The Mummy. Very creative title. <laughs> and, uh, and then he did a lot of horror films after that. He kind of became known for doing that. And then in 1966, he was the narrator for the Grinch movie. And he was also the voice of the Grinch. Uh, so that kind of made his career boom. So then let's go to 1934. He is married to his wife, Dorothy, at this time, and they decide to move in to this house in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills. You know. um, now, this house that they had decided to move in had previously been occupied by Katherine Hepburn, a, another notable actress in Hollywood, because she had moved out from the East Coast uh, to Los Angeles. And she was living in this house with actress Eve March. And apparently they were experiencing some ghostly happenings. Uh, now, in the book, The Movie Land Directory by E.J., and also in the book Hollywood Death and Scandal Sites, 
Uh, EJ writes that one night, March watched the door latch open and close by itself. And the next day, Hepburn and March watched a ghostly man walk from the pool into the apartment, closing the door behind him. The first time Hepburn's younger brother, Richard, stayed overnight, he told her that a young man stood over his bed all night, staring down at him. He was too afraid to move until sunrise. So because of all of these hauntings, Catherine moves out in 1934, and that is when Boris Karloff and his wife moves in. And guess what happens? What? <laughs> Come on, what do you think happens? Um, they're all abducted by aliens. Oh my gosh, how Right. <laughs> by aliens and we never hear from Boris Karloff again. Ever again. The, uh, yeah. um. Nothing. Nothing happened. They never oh. experienced any of these ghostly things. In fact, Boris Karloff made this home into a paradise. Like they had a butt ton, a butt ton of animals. And when I mean butt ton, they had bucks, dogs, cows parrots tortoises and pigs a 400 pound pig named violet okay and and he also had a beautiful garden like a gorgeous rose garden and that was kind of his paradise where he lived and he had friends that loved his uh, rose garden so much that when his friends died of not being murdered they asked that their ashes be willed to him so that he could spread them in the rose garden so that they could be there for eternity. And apparently quite a few friends have asked Boris Karloff to spread their ashes in the rose garden that it is now considered one of the most haunted places in Los Angeles. But the thing is, many of the encounters people will have with these ghosts, they say that they are not angry or threatening or scary, that they're actually seem to be very peaceful and benign. But, you know, they're still ghosts. That's still going to be freaking scary. Um, but the thing is, even though Boris Karloff and his wife never had any issues with the ghosts, once they moved out and other people started moving in, they began to experience the same thing that Catherine Hepburn was experiencing, especially with the, the pool house. So they, again, the weird scratchings, uh, seeing apparitions, uh, and especially having somebody look over them while they're, while they're sleeping like that was, there was multiple accounts and, uh, because of that, that a lot of different people have been moving in and out of that house for many years. So some of the people that have lived there included Eric Burden, who is a rock musician. He moved out uh, because of the hauntings, apparently. Uh, director Gottfried Reinhardt was also living there uh, and moved out. Leland Hayward, um, his wife, Margaret Sullivan, they lived there. Uh, I, I mean, that's the whole thing is a whole bunch of all these famous people keep moving in there and then moving out. Um, there's even a gentleman by the name of Fred Jordan, 
who says that the place has a quasi demonic history. But again, what's super interesting is that when Bela Lugosi was living there, there was absolutely no ha- uh, no no hauntings that they reported. They loved it. It was you mean you mean Boris Karloff. That's what I meant when Boris Karloff lived there. <laughs> so, but interesting thing is when Boris Karloff lived there, he didn't have any of those issues. Um, and uh, there hasn't been a lot of changes to it. It still remains pretty much in the same condition. Uh, there's actually a funny story that's in the book, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. Uh, Mank writes, uh, one of the recent owners relates that a late in life, Catherine Hepburn suddenly appeared one day without warning, mysteriously dressed in black and inspecting the house and grounds. Well, said Hepburn to the Hepburn to the owner, I'm glad to see you haven't fucked the place up. So, <laughs> uh, thing about that place, but is Rose Gardens. Um, but if you are able to visit it, it is considered one of the most haunted places. And I think it would just be a really uh, beautiful place, you know, to enjoy Boris Karloff's Paradise. And it is located at 2320 Baumont Drive in Beverly Crest. So if you're ever in Los Angeles and you want to go to a place that will have nice, peaceful ghosts, there it is. So, yeah, that's 1930s. So next is... It would be Pat, but now's a good time for us to take a break and hear from one of our fellow podcaster sponsors. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you're listening. I'm going to talk to you about John Gilbert Graham, who was um, one of the first mass murders you might not have ever heard of. Oh, okay. Um, but this is like one of those ones where, like, you know, like when you're scrolling through Reddit, like at five in the morning because you can't sleep, and you're like, oh, this dude's weird. So I'll take like a screenshot of it and then read about it later. Um, so John Gilbert Graham was born on January 23rd, 1932, in Denver, Colorado. Uh, he was the child of Daisy Graham. Uh, and her second husband, uh, nicknamed him Jack Graham. Uh, Graham was born during the height of the Great Depression, and in 1937, unfortunately, his father died from pneumonia, uh, which caused Daisy to send young Jack to an orphanage due to their poverty. Poverty, sorry. In 1941, Daisy was married for the third time to Earl King, who died shortly after their marriage. Using her inheritance from King's death, uh, Daisy became a successful businesswoman, but despite found uh, the new wealth that she had acquired, 
she did not collect uh, Graham from the orphanage. That was definitely reminded me of like some flowers in the attic stuff. Mm -hmm. She just left her boy in the orphanage. Yeah. Okay. This is, so this like 1941 is when she left him in the orphanage. Um, so Daisy did not actually collect him. Um, they've actually remained apart from until 1954. So Graham was now 22 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and this was like, she had, she had money for a long time and she had a successful business and everything. So obviously their relationship is not good. Um, when uh, he, he did finally come back and they, you know, sort of re you know, got back together, not, not exactly rekindled a relationship, but um, they were obviously not, uh, they were seen arguing quite a bit and everybody kind of knew, you know, that knew her because like I said, she was successful. So they knew that what she had done and like how their son was like always arguing with her, but it was just kind of like a known thing. Um, but he, at 23 years old, had apparently turned over a new leaf. He was a husband and father of two who worked at his mother's drive-in restaurant, the Crown A. Uh, and then his, he also had a house, but his mother had also paid for it. Um, and he worked at the Hertz rental garage as well. Uh, he lived at 2650 West Mississippi in a home purchased by his mother, like I said, uh, but he was also known to still be like moody and erratic at people at work all the time. Um, so he made his mother's life difficult. He was constantly engaging in what his mother had labeled him as dubious activities, uh, which I'll get into later on, uh, because he would just go missing for days, uh, but she never knew what was going on. But I'll get into that later. This will definitely make more sense. Um, on Labor Day weekend in 1955, a mysterious explosion nearly leveled the Crown A, and Graham was the main suspect. Um, though nothing was ever proved, uh, one person who truly seemed to love Graham unconditionally, though, was his wife, his wife Gloria, uh, who he met during a failed stint at Denver University. Gloria stood by Graham up until the bitter end, and is always portrayed as an innocent character in all accounts of this uh, story. On November 2nd, 1955, John Gilbert Graham told police that he fought to hold down the contents of his stomach when he heard that a United Airlines flight 629 bound for Anchorage uh, out of Denver's Stapleton Airfield had crashed shortly after takeoff, the same plane he had just put his mother on. The apparent explosion that brought down the United 629 uh, killed all 44 passengers and crew and was witnessed by farm families in the Longmont, the Longmont area who heard a blast followed by a rain of fiery debris falling from the sky. Um, both eyewitnesses and investigators immediately suspect, uh, suspected foul play in the downing of the mainliner. Those would-be rescuers noticed the distinct odor of dynamite throughout the wreckage and investigators pointed out that some of the bigger pieces of the plane had appeared to have dropped directly from the sky and sunk deep into the earth. So that would mean like an explosion happened and it just shot straight down, you know, so it like went, you know, went w way deep into the earth when it came down. So that would mean this wasn't just a, you know, an engine that went bad. Um, yeah, things weren't <clears throat> falling, they were being projected yeah, exactly, yeah. into the sky, or into the earth. Mm -hmm. 
though much of the debris was centered in an area near Longmont, the entire debris field stretched out over a 15 mile range. Investigators from a range of agencies, including the FBI, FAA, Civil Air Patrol, and the United States Postal Service, because it was carrying mail, because it was going to Alaska, apparently, uh, and United Airlines combed the wreckage and came up with an interesting clue. Every known suitcase on the flight was recovered, mostly in remarkably good condition, as the explosion occurred near the front of the plane. All the suitcases, except the one belonging to Mrs. King, um, John's uh, mother, uh, uh, this, that was the only suitcase that was missing. So obviously that one had exploded. Yeah. Uh, upon further investigation, authorities found that King's son, uh, John, had been convicted of several crimes, including stealing bank checks from an employer and running bootleg liquor. Uh, they notified FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who ordered agents to focus on him after learning all this information. Authorities were also intrigued by the fact that Graham had purchased several life insurance policies on his mother at the airport. Oh my God, at the airport? You could do back then. You could purchase life insurance for somebody at the airport. It was I wonder if you could still do that today. It was no. crazy. No, you can't do it now. I There's know. a vending machine? Yeah. There's like a life insurance vending machine? Is in, that what you're really saying? In mid-century America, life insurance vending machines were a policy could be purchased for as little as 25 cents. These oh wow at airports of all sizes but he bought one for more than 50 grand Ooh. which would be about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars today oh my god but yeah you could buy it at the airport like how suspect is that you know and would yeah and how would you feel <laughs> if your if your son was bringing you to the airport and they're like yeah just go ahead i also filled out a life insurance policy on you just yeah you know, like what the fuck <laughs> have a safe flight right? yeah exactly yeah it's, it just didn't make sense um so on sunday november 13th fbi agents invited the grams to the federal building on south street and this was to identify the charred pieces of mrs king's luggage and to clear up some details pertaining to the case uh, so they didn't let him know that they thought he was a suspect at this point uh, over the course of the next 12 hours, FBI agents would press Graham on subjects ranging from life insurance policies uh, to his interactions with his mother's suitcase. Authorities uh, knew that Graham had tampered with his mother's suitcase because a suspicious neighbor had told them that he had mentioned that he was going to sneak a Christmas present into her luggage. He told a neighbor that. <laughs> Daisy was the earliest who made costume jewelry, and her son had allegedly purchased a jewelry-making tool for her. In Graham's version of the story, he put the tool in the luggage and secured the bag, a locally-made Samsonite with a broken hinge, with the straps he purchased at a local surplus store. Of course, there was no jewelry tool. Uh, it, was, it was only 25 sticks of dynamite and a few blasting caps on a 20-minute timer. Oh, my God. Uh, Graham knew that, and he and the uh, FBI suspected that too as well. Uh, Graham was wearing his Sunday best when he arrived at the old customs house around noon on Sunday, given that he was actually coming from church. Uh, this wasn't crazy shocking, but you know, some people played it off as that you know he's trying to put it off this good person attitude or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but agents were never really convinced of his stories about his mother's suitcase, and they became you know constantly more questions for him. 
Uh, at around 6.30 p.m., agents informed Graham that he was a suspect in the bombing and that he was both free to go and to call an attorney because this was before Miranda Rights. Wow. Um, yeah, this is the 50s. Yeah, Graham was nothing if not cocksure and continued to press his made-up stories to the feds. And at around midnight, agents James R. Wagner said, you've been lying to us all night. We're going to charge you with this crime. Why not make it easy for us? And he's like, where do you want me to start? <laughs> So he just gives up. He's like, okay, I'll tell you. Uh, with that, Graham unspooled his plot to cash in on his mother's death and be rid of her once and for all. Uh, he actually saying, I watched her go off for the last time. I felt happier than I ever felt in my life. <laughs> the other 43 people on the plane were barely an afterthought for Graham. His one regret was that a 10 minute delay had caused the plane to explode over, a, over open farmland. In his original plan, the device would detonate over more mountainous terrain, which would have made that uh, finding the evidence a lot harder. Uh, oh. uh, but because it landed on farmland, they were able to like literally reconstruct the whole thing in a, in a barn. They reconstructed the entire plane. That's how they're able to identify all this stuff. Um, as it was, investigators were finding piles of evidence against Graham after investigation that was incredibly thorough and, yeah, sorry, yeah, and utilizing state-of-the-art investigative techniques uh, that are, are still mainstays of um, Air, air disaster investigations today. This is like what kind of wrote the blueprint for that. Like people still use the way they did this uh, back then because this wasn't a thing like at the time re reconstructing an airplane to see what, what had blown it up. You know, this was kind of one of the first of those cases. Wow. Um, so with Graham's confession in hand, the prosecution's uh, case seemed open and shut, but that was simply too good to be true. Uh, four days after taking credit for the bombing, Graham recanted his confession in an interview uh, that appeared in the Rocky Mountain News uh, under the headline, Dynamiter Changes His Story. <laughs> and of course, it was said like that. Too. He was charged with the murder of his mother, federal charges with regards to the destruction of the plane, um, the kind that would likely be leveled today uh, had, not yet, had not yet been written, which is weird because a lot of these things like... Uh, it actually said that there was not a law against blowing up an airplane at the time. And it was like weird, like that, like mm. that, like they had to like work that out before they even charged this case. Uh, but through the course of the investigation, prosecutors amassed plenty of evidence against Graham, despite his own presumptions. Uh, he was not actually a skillful criminal. Um, Graham's change of heart also included an attempt at clearing himself by reason of insanity after a botched suicide attempt. Uh, he then was taken to the state hospital in Pueblo where doctors found him to be in good enough mental, to con uh, mental condition to stand trial. With the trial date set for April 16th, 1956, um, everybody braced for one, what would be one of the most uh, biggest criminal trials ever because this was also one of the first that was televised too. Um, at trial, prosecutors brought forth witnesses who recalled Graham purchasing dynamite and blasting caps, uh, which apparently very cheap and easy to buy in the 50s, but I guess that makes sense, yeah. Uh, and he was able to, they were, all these witnesses were able to pick him out of the lineup. They also produced witnesses who attested to Graham's mechanical skills and prior experience with dynamite. They also linked wire used in the bomb to wire found in Graham's home. 
After the crash, Graham told neighbors that he was upset that his mother had died without ever seeing the surprise Christmas gift that he had uh, put into her luggage. So he was still sticking with the story that he had put a Christmas gift in her luggage and that he was sad about that. Uh, and because Graham was so specific about exactly what kind of gift, uh, investigators had no problem finding the only places in Denver, in Denver where they were sold. Because this uh -huh. was the 50s, so there was only like one place where they would sell that type of jewelry tool. They were able to prove no one purchased one. Uh -huh. um, he also apparently mentioned premonitions of his mother's death uh, as early as November 3rd, uh, which apparently didn't help his case either because people just now saw him as really crazy. There I am. Uh, over the course of the 15-day trial, prosecutors meticulously laid out a case that established the cause of the crash as a non-mechanical explosion. Uh, to bolster their point, they brought the judge and jury to a massive hangar near Stapleton Airfield where the mainliner had been meticulously reconstructed. Uh, through this type of reconstruction, uh, it actually had been used to investigate other air, air disasters, like I was saying. Uh, this is one of the largest reconstructions done up to that point in time. The case against Graham was amplified in a way that no other suspected criminal had experienced to that point because of a new spectator in the courtroom, the television. Uh, so the state of Colorado versus John Gilbert was the first trial in history where television cameras were allowed in the court proceedings. Um, the court activities were not broadcast live um, and any participant who preferred not to be on camera would opt out, which was him. Everyone was okay with it except for him, which I guess is like a bummer being it, it being the first one. Uh, the judge actually had a remote button that allowed him to turn the cameras off and on as necessary. Oh, cool. Um, on May 5th, after hearing 80 witnesses and examining 174 pieces of evidence, the jury in the mainliner case was left to render the verdict. Uh, in just over an hour, they came back with a guilty verdict and a recommendation of death. Through his attorneys, uh, though his attorneys advised otherwise, Graham waived all his appeals. And on May 15th, Graham was sent to Colorado's death row in Cannon City. Uh, against his wishes, Graham's legal teams filed motions to halt the state with the gas chamber. These proceedings stretched on until October of 1956, when the Colorado Supreme Court upheld Graham's death sentence. His execution date was set for the week of January 12th, 1957. Graham did, however, jokingly invite a Denver Post reporter who had recovered his trial to sit on his lap during the execution as one of his last requests. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah this guy had been like talking, like, like he was like a really, he was just reporting on the case, but he was obviously not putting uh, Graham in a good light, you know, because of what was going on. And that, that was like one of his last requests, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, he would, of course, also, before then, take credit, I forgot to mention, for blowing up the family restaurant, too. Oh. Later on, or right before he, he passed. What? He, when the restaurant blew up earlier, when, you know. Oh, yeah. He eventually, of course, because they never proved that it was him, you know, but he eventually confessed to that, too. Mm. But obviously, wow. if he was going to put a Christmas present full of dynamite in, into your mom's suitcase. Uh, Merry Christmas. That's uh, John Gilbert Graham. That's the uh, well, I mean, not nice. Terrible. Gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. 
All right. Um, so yeah, well, I guess we'll move on to the next story. Um, Teresa, what do you got for us? Yeah. All right. Well, I have got a very disturbing series of murders uh, related to Hollywood. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of the Hollywood Ripper. Oh, no, no, I should no. know. I should know about this, but I, I know. Wait till I will tell you all about him. And actually, I have to give Josh credit for helping me find this topic because I was doing research and I couldn't really find what I was looking for. And then uh, Josh mentioned this case to me and he was telling me the details. And I was like, I have never heard of this. So, yeah wait till I tell you because it's pretty crazy. So um, yes, but this is, um, this murder surprise is about the Hollywood Ripper as he was called. He also had a few other names, which I'll let you know of, but um, his actual name is Michael Gargiulio, Gargiulio. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> Thank goodness it had somewhere for how to pronounce the name because otherwise it's it's G-A-R-G-I-U-L-O, Italian, I believe. But uh, yeah, I was like, oh gosh, I'm going to stumble on that. So uh, <laughs> Michael Gargiulio, also known as the Hollywood Ripper, was actually from Illinois, where I'm also from, but I'm from closer to Chicago, he's from Glenview, which is on the North Shore of Chicago. Uh, so typically maybe a little more wealthy, but I believe the suburb he was living in, it was a little more modest working class, um, but still living in Glenview, I mean, that's that's really foreign to me because that's pretty pretty far north up the shore. So too, too nice for me, no. <laughs> um, but Michael is known as the Hollywood Ripper. He is a convicted now serial killer and rapist. And it's the story of how he actually got to Hollywood and earned that nickname, which was a media nickname. But, um, you know, it's kind of kind of mind blowing how it all how it all happened. Um, so let's see. I should probably start with um, his first victim and I'll just detail some of the things that happened, but uh, our story actually started in 1993. And like I said, in Glenview, Illinois, where he was from, he lived uh, about five houses away from a girl named Trisha Picacho and Trisha was 18 years old at the time of the crime, which was her murder. She was found uh, the next morning by her father right outside of her house, mind you, in the back. Um, it's either the back area or the side area, but it's a, a stoop out there on the step. He found her dead. She had been stabbed to death. And it turned out that she was stabbed about 12 times. Um, and that for Michael Gargiulio, at that point, that was 
a light number. It's going to get much worse from then on. Um, but he stabbed her about 12 times to death. She was found by her father the next morning, August 14th, 1993. And it said that he uh, twisted her left arm so hard it snapped. And then he went ahead and stabbed her. Um, so by the time he was done stabbing her, her heart, lungs, abdomen, arm, her collarbone, and her back had all been affected um, in the stabbing. And yeah, she was just 18. They were, <clears throat> they knew each other, um, you know, kind of, at, it said at school that, that Trisha was, they didn't move in the same social circles, so they couldn't, they weren't even really acquaintances. However, <clears throat> Michael knew um, her brother and he would occasionally come over to the house from time to time. Um, and the mother said, Trisha's mother said that um, it was also fairly common for, you know, the neighborhood kids to stop by, pop in and say, hey, what are you cooking, Mrs. P? Or, you know, so it was kind of a very casual environment in that sense. Um, but yeah, he, you know, just decided to do this one night. Um, it was between one and two in the morning. And the really tragic thing, I mean, all of it and all of the crimes are completely horrific as I will let you know of, but um, especially with Trisha, like I said, she was only 18. She was about to, well, she had just graduated high school and she was one week away from going to Purdue University. So just, a life completely robbed, cut short. And Michael Gargiulio would think nothing of it. Um, you'll come to know that he's just not the greatest person <laughs> in the world. Um, so why he killed Trisha, um, it's not known. Um, and he denies ever, you know, he denies killing her and all of the rest of his victims as well. Um, but the good thing about Trisha's case was that um, even back in 1993, they were trying to do all they could to find out, you know, how did this crime happen? Why did it happen? Who did it? So they managed to uh, get her fingernail clippings and um, try to process you know, for DNA, but at that time, you know, things were stalled. It was still very early in that kind of technology. So um, I will get back to that DNA part though, because that's going to be important later. Um, but so, okay, so Michael, he goes ahead and murders Trisha and um, he's interviewed by the police, but, um, the police only interview him a couple times and they don't really delve into too much about his backstory or like what kind of a person he is. But if they would have, they would have realized that he has an explosive rage, uh, just this uncontrollable anger and, um, you know, whatever else would cause him to be this kind of monstrous person that he apparently is. Um, so they, they kind of just discount it 
and nothing more is really said about it for a while. Um, although weird things happen after Trisha's murdered, um, shortly after she's murdered, uh, Michael begins sending random gifts to the family. Like he sent the mother flowers, he sent the father a shirt, and uh, the mother said he even sent us a coupon to a restaurant. She said it was really weird. And yeah. he was known to, she said, to be kind of socially awkward whenever he would pop into the house. He would, you know, not want to really talk to anybody and just kind of, he wouldn't stay for too long. Okay, so all of that is, is very relevant um, to what I'm getting to in the future. Um, but <clears throat> he does all of this. And then in the fall of 1998, so um, math, five years after Trisha has been murdered, he goes over to the Picacho's home on a random afternoon and he wants to, he sees the mother and he asks if the father is home. She says, no. And he says, okay, do you know what time he's gonna be home? Um, and she's like, I, you know, maybe an hour or so. So he sits in a chair and he waits there. And she said, of course, yeah, she said that, of course, was totally odd as well, because yeah. he's spending like brief bursts of time at their house, like very short moments. And so for him to just show up uninvited and then ask to sit and wait for the father for yeah. an hour, totally strange, right? So, I, to so I had this ex-boyfriend who made friends with our neighbors, <laughs> our neighbor, and you know, to be fair, I believe our neighbor was on maybe the spectrum at some point, but our neighbor, he would do that type of stuff. He's not a serial killer as far as I know, or a <laughs> murderer, <God>. but, <laughs> but he would knock on, he would fucking knock on our door and be like, Hey, is Matt here? And I'd be like, no, he's not here. He's going to, he's not going to be home for a like for yeah. an hour, you know, or so. And he would be like, okay, I'll wait. And one time he, I was literally closing the door and he put his foot in the door and said, okay, I'll wait and came in and sat on our couch Oh my God. for an hour. And like, I was like sitting there like, is this fucking guy going to like, what's fucking going on right now? Is he going to kill me? Yeah. What's happening? And he literally <laughs> just waited. Yeah, no. And so, I told Matt, like, you need to be careful when you're making friends with the neighbors because they're so in such close proximity to where you live that if they're like socially awkward, like no offense to people who are socially awkward. No, no, yeah. Too, you know, and everything. But these, if these people don't understand boundaries, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, especially if you're told no, right? Yeah. That's you have to be careful like making friends with your neighbors because yeah they might not understand boundaries what am i th thinking of? what movie where is where they really depict that well is it office space um, uh, i'm mm -hmm. trying to think they depict that really well where like the neighbor is, yeah. keeps knocking on the window of his car you know and oh well, yeah anyways yeah. i sorry that <laughs> no that's reminded, okay that reminded me of that you know yes yeah, so so as you're describing, like, completely odd behavior, right? I mean, that's yeah. something that a person typically does, you know. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, my, you know, Michael went and did that. And then when Mr. Picacho came home, um, Michael looked like he was going to say something, confess, maybe give details about the case, maybe be cryptic. Who knows? Well, he never got to do that because um, it said in the article that I read, and this one is where I got most of my information on this case uh, from was chicagomag.com. If you're more interested in finding out about the case, it sets out a pretty detailed timeline of all the events. But um, anyway, so so where was I? Yeah, so my, um, Michael was about to, to say something. And then as soon as that was going to happen, his father and his sister burst through the door, no knocking, just ran into the kitchen where he was, grabbed his arm and just pulled him out of there. And after that happened, the Picacho said that that was the last time that they ever saw Michael Gargiulio in person. Um, that, and after that time as well was when he fled to California and he wound up in Los Angeles area, Hollywood area. Um, and I guess he went there with one of his brothers um, and he met this guy that was um, into martial arts and getting all beefed up and stuff like that. So that was kind of his personality that he was into that. Um, and so I guess he felt like it kind of gave him maybe more of an intimidating look. Um, he's, you know, not unattractive, I guess. Not for me, definitely. I mean, especially <laughs> after I heard, you know how sometimes you, you just want to look at a picture of the person that's committed these crimes? Like, who's doing this, you know? I mean, it definitely looks like something's off with him right away to me in every single picture I've seen. But... Um, you know, he could have, you know, I mean, he you know, did have, what is his name again? Ralph? No, Michael Gargiulio. So it's G yeah, Ralph from <laughs> no Ralph G A R G I U L O Michael Gargiulio. I mean, he just looks creepy AF to me. So I wouldn't go anywhere near him, but of course these ladies didn't want to be anywhere near him either. But he did, Ooh. yeah, he has his, his head, like now he's bald, but um, yeah, he did have like. Just before he, he looked yeah. somewhat. Yeah, normal. I mean, I don't know. He it's, looks like a 90s douchebag. Yeah, I, feel, I feel bad for this guy who's. It's the eyes, yeah. yeah. I feel bad for this guy who is clearly not him, but has the same name. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I read the wiki article at first, it said at the top, it says not to be confused with Michael Gargiulio, the TV director and his son, who's a TV anchorman who has the same yeah. name. So, yeah. yeah, you don't want to be associated with a serial killer. I don't blame you. Uh, so, But anyway, so. So, yeah, Michael comes uh, to California um, and this is where it's going to get into our Hollywood aspect of the crimes. Oh, so 
yeah, okay. Moving on. So Michael, he's getting into all sorts of things while he's living here in the ninth, or I'm sorry, at this point it would be, yeah, the late nineties, early two thousands here in Los Angeles. Um, he was kind of, how shall I put it? I mean, it's said that he liked to talk a lot of tall tales about himself. Um, in reality, he was, um, he went around, you know, and whether he really had this knowledge or not, it's kind of unclear, but he went around saying that he was an air conditioner and heating repair guy. That was kind of his big business thing. That was his job. But uh, also in addition to that, or prior to that, he was a bouncer at the Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset Boulevard. Wait, is that, is that what he would say? No, that's, he actually was a bouncer. Yeah, um, that really happened. Yeah, that wasn't uh, one of his, that was not one of his tall tales. And I've they did to work there. A couple of people have worked there. Yeah. Well, if you, I mean, if, I mean, anyone was there in the late nineties, they would, might know him, but um, yeah, so he ruined that job for himself because in 1999, he got fired for uh, quote unquote decking a customer in the face or wherever. Um, so he got let go from, from that. Um, um, let's all be real though. Haven't you ever wanted to do that to <laughs> a customer? Like, I, I, I kind of relate with that. So. Yes. Crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of just wanted to like spill something on them. That yeah. would satisfy me, but. <laughs> uh, I, I had this guest who was like, literally like roasting me my whole tour, which is like, it's fine a little bit, but it gets tiring. And he was like picking on me like you would pick on a little girl at the schoolyard. We're like, yeah, just trying to flirt with me in a way that flirting with me in a way that was like slightly picking on me. Yeah. And he was about to go down to the basement. Uh, and he was at the top of the stairs of the basement by himself, turning around, saying stupid shit. And all I could think of is that it would just take one quick little shove <laughs> for him to <laughs> topple down the basement stairs. Oops. You know. <laughs> then yeah. really happened in the basement a murder i mean tia those are healthy thoughts they're cathartic thoughts because i mean you're not you didn't actually do it right so there you go i did not i yeah. I, I went and confessed to my manager about it too i was like i had this thought <laughs> and he was like well next time just make sure your hands aren't visible to the camera <laughs> nice <laughs> okay so let's see. Okay, so yeah, um, fired from Rainbow Bar, um, and then he went around as this AC heater guy. Um, and some say uh, that he was also an aspiring actor, but his aspiring actor—I mean, who isn't? Obviously, uh, <laughs> all of us are, right? But then you know, the point with him is that apparently he did like one. Um, student film wait what happened 
I, I just went. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, exactly. Valley, it's everybody has an app that's developed, so every place has their thing. LA, it's we're all fucking actors, so yes, that's right. So you get it, <laughs> but yeah, he apparently just his extent of his, you know, aspiring acting was that he was in one student film one time and that was it. And that was the end of his. That's still here in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're right. I'm not setting the tone very well. Yes. You're completely right. So, okay. Okay. This is fancy place. This is Los Angeles. You do. (laughs) No, you're right. So this is going to, unfortunately, set the scene, uh, this, you know, kind of backdrop uh, for him here in Hollywood. And um, back in February of 2001, he is going to, unfortunately, find stock and kill his next victim and um so maybe like a year before that let's say he becomes acquainted in hollywood with a girl named ashley ellerin and ashley ellerin was just 22 years old at the time so once again another young girl just like trisha was 18 now ashley's you know 22 but she lives in hollywood and she lives you know, right near everything, right? The Walk of Fame, all of that is within walking distance uh, from her home. But he meets her uh, really on a chance happening. She's out in front of her house changing a tire with one of her friends. Uh, And no, he wasn't her roommate, but he was just a friend. Anyway, so they're changing a tire and Mike walks up, so now he's going by Mike, and that's how he introduces himself. He he walks up to her and he hands him hands her a card uh, with his name on it that says that he's you know an AC heating repair guy, and um, if you need any help with anything, you know, let me know. Um, but from that point on, he does not leave her alone. And he really inserts himself in a very dangerous way in her life. He's, yeah, <laughs> no, he didn't actually do that, but um, he, uh, he could have. Uh, it's strange why he didn't, but anyway. So he, <laughs> he uh, shows up uninvited and often to her place and, you know, tries to get into the party she's going to and stuff like that. And it's like, who is this guy? Right. And so her friends, um, namely her, her first, um, roommate, who's, uh, a guy, um, he starts to tell her, you know, I don't really trust this guy. He's giving me bad vibes. And he gave the, he gave Mike a ride home one night somewhere. And, um, he said that it just got really weird. Like the conversation got weird. And then Mike actually got physical with him. Like he grabbed his arm at one point, like for no reason. And that he was just like, okay, you know? So, and after, even after he told Ashley about this incident, he said that she was just such an open, trusting, caring person that, you know, she's just like, oh, come on, you know, maybe brushed it off or something like that. 
So did not heed any kind of warning at all, even though, you know, clearly there were people saying like, hey, this guy's, you know, something's up with him. He's not good. Yeah. Why is he showing up at your place all the, you know, you don't even know where he came from. He just came from nowhere, basically. So anyway, um, fast forwarding to the night of February 21st, 2001. This is when things were going to get horrible for Ashley. So Ashley, and now here's the big um, reason why I even found out about this case, because I I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't know this. But um, back in 2001, Ashley was about to go on a date that night with none other than, at the time, up and coming rising star of that 70s show, Ashton Kutcher. Oh. So, yeah, they were dating. They had just started dating at that time. And so Ashton was actually going to become very important later on in providing the, unfortunately, but fortunately, providing the timeline, the exact timeline of events as they happened that night. So I know it's like so sad. And like, actually, when you, if you, um, you know, Google that trial or whatever, there will be a picture that pops up, several pictures, but one of Ashton Kutcher and he's like wiping away tears as he's, you know, testifying about it. So it's just like, you know, just incredible. So um, anyway, they had a date set for that night, but um, Ashton said that um, it was the night of the Grammys, by the way. And he called Ashley around seven o'clock or so to say that um, he was going to be late because he wanted to go watch the Grammys at a friend's house. Um, He was gonna go do that. And then he um, comes to her place around 1045 at night. And he sees that her car is still in the driveway and the lights are on inside of her house. So he walks up to the door, knocks, no one answers. And he knocks again, no answer. And then he finally decides to look, uh, go to the side of the house and look in the window. And he could see, he doesn't see anybody really in the house. It just looks empty. But he notices that there's this weird stain that he thinks is a stain from red wine. And it was just outside the entrance to her bedroom. Uh, So he just rationalizes it at the time thinking, okay, so that's probably red wine on the floor. He also said that she had been remodeling. So things were kind of really messy inside. Um, So he didn't think anything of that, even though things were like in disarray, but he discounts, you know, the, what's a blood stain on the floor. Um, but he doesn't know that the reason she's not answering the door is because she's already been murdered at this point by Michael Gargiulio. So he killed her about 45 minutes earlier, around mm-hmm. 10 o'clock. So when he keeps knocking and then he looks in the window, he sees nobody's there. He just thinks, well, she's pissed at me because I came to pick her up really late. 
So she's standing me up, but she's freezing me out. She's not going to come out tonight. So he just decides to leave. And then the next morning, her new roommate, who's her current roommate at that time, she finds her inside of the house dead. So her roommate is actually the one who discovered her. And um, Ashley, he really um, saved a lot of horrible shit for Ashley because he stabbed her 47 times and the neck wound that he caused almost severed her head. Oh God. They said that it was hanging on by her spinal cord. So if you can imagine that. Um, and it said also that there were six inch deep punctures to her chest, her stomach, and her back. And the detective, one of the main detectives who was on the case, Detective Tom Small, he said that one stab wound, quote, actually penetrated the skull and took out a chunk of skull like a puzzle piece. Jesus. That's what he did to this poor young girl. And yeah, she was just going to go on a date with Ashton that night. That was going to be like their first date. Um, so that is horrible. And yeah, she just had a very trusting personality. So that, you know, he must have showed up and for whatever reason, she let him in, which is odd because she had just come out of the shower as well. So I mean, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't feel comfortable letting anyone in my house, but certainly not after I've taken a shower and I'm in my robe, because that's how they found her in her robe with like her night clothes on, you know, her, her jammies. So yeah, that was, that was Ashley. But then a couple more ladies also fell victim to Michael Gargiulo, unfortunately, um, in and then I have to, to trace back a little bit, but uh, in 2005, there was a woman living in El Monte here in California, and her name was Maria Bruno. And she was also stabbed to death at her home by Mo Michael Gargiulo, who was living uh, in the same complex at the time. So he stalked her, and this was just 10 days after meeting her. Um, or not meeting her, but, you know, <laughs> seeing her, I guess, and then just deciding that this was going to be his next victim. So he stabbed her 17 times. And if you thought that the brutalization of Ashley was bad, I'm not going to say it gets worse, because I don't think you can compare, you know, these kinds of things. But um, with Maria, after he stabbed her 17 times, he slashed off one of her breasts and then he placed it over her mouth like posed her you know and so that's just obviously sick stuff um she was 32 years old at the time mother of four she was an aspiring model she was gorgeous i mean if you look up any of these ladies that's a thing too you're you're starting to see a, a pattern here right i mean these ladies are all younger, they're beautiful, and just cut short in the prime of their life. Um, so luckily for her, thank goodness, 
there was another woman in uh, 2008 and her name was, is Michelle Murphy. And she was living in Santa Monica and she was attacked inside of her home. So it said that she did her laundry. She went to bed and about an hour later, Michael was on top of her trying to stab her and kill her. Um, but she managed to fight him off, thank God, and survived. And um, the really important thing about Michelle, other than the fact that she survived, thank goodness, was that she was going to wind up being a key witness in the trial, the future trial that was going to take place. Because when you know, it's, it's interesting because things that I read about him, um, he thought very highly of himself, of course, and he would brag to people that, um, and even like ex-girlfriends that he would also physically abuse, of course, um, but he would brag like, hey, I can do anything I want to you because I am really smart and I know how to cover things up you know, like I know about forensics, that type of thing. So just trying to be kind of a, you know, superior person, I guess, in that sense, um, to try and intimidate with fear. But um, the attack that he did on Michelle, he left blood drops. And those blood drops were going to be very um, important in um, implicating him in the case because um, things had stalled with Trisha Picachos, his first victim. They had stalled with the DNA um, and the blood drops that were found at Michelle Murphy's attack scene, they were matched. So finally the DNA was matched together because by that time, um, Trisha's DNA was in the database. So they could match it together finally. Um, so Michael was finally arrested by the Santa Monica police on June 6th, that's today, but in 2008. I know, isn't that weird too? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I did not plan that, but um, yeah, he was arrested June 6th, 2008. And on July 7th, 2011, the Cook County State's Attorney, that's in Illinois, they charged uh, Michael with first-degree murder of Trisha Picasso. And um, so his trial began on May 2nd, 2019. And as I said before, Ashton Kutcher testified at the trial. And on July 16th, 2021, uh, Michael Gargiulio was sentenced to death. So he's actually expected to be extradited back to Illinois for Trisha's murder. And if he's extradited and convicted in Illinois, he will face a sentence there of 25 years to life. And here with his sentence to death, um, that, you know, will remain to be seen if that happens since uh, our governor has banned the death penalty, and it said that the last, um, the last uh, execution, I guess, was in 2006 here in California. So, um, but you know, he probably will be extradited back to Illinois because her 
Trisha's parents have been fighting for years and years uh, to get justice for their daughter. So I think that that probably will happen. Um, but when on July 16th, 2021, when he was announcing the sentence, Judge Larry P. Fiddler said, quote, in this case, everywhere that Mr. Gargiulio went, death and destruction followed. And that's certainly very true because if you just look at the timeline, the events of his life, that's definitely true. Um, let's see. So yeah, I think that that, that was all I had, but um, you know, that is the tale of the Hollywood Ripper, which is wow. pretty cool. current. Oh yeah, I should tell you, these were his other names, which I forgot to include. He's also been called the Chiller Killer and the Boy Next Door Killer. Oh, okay. wow. Because he's like, you know, that person that lives next to you that will climb into your window and try and kill you in the middle of the night. So... Oh. That's great. It's like, it's like a living nightmare come to life. I mean, yeah. I think every one of us, man or woman, you know, you've had that fear at one time or another. Well, he's the guy that actually does it. So it's like terrifying. So I just couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard anything about the case. And then the connection with Ashton Kutcher, I was like, this is a surprise Hollywood yeah. murder. I was like, oh my goodness. Oh, and Ashley was, I forgot to mention, but I mean, you could probably put it together, but she was dating in those circles, even as young as she was. She was linked to Vince Vaughn and Vin Diesel and some other people. So yeah, um, I guess it was never meant to be with her and Ashton. Mm. Crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah, I just was, I couldn't believe, I was like, wait, He's from Illinois and like, I know like where he's from and the whole thing with LA now, I just was like, whoa, this is just really spooky. <laughs> just all the details and that he could get away with it for as long as he did, you know? And actually I forgot to add too, because this is a heartbreaking part to the story, but it's even more reason for Trisha's parents to get justice for their daughter because after Ashley was killed, um, they were at that point, they were already starting to make connections um, between the cases and um, the DNA in 2003. So a couple of years later, after all this came to the detectives attention, they started to work together a bit. And in 2003, they recognized that the DNA was a match to um, the DNA under Trisha's fingernails. But they said that they, at that point, and this is the fault solely of the Cook, Cook County uh, State Attorney Office, it's their fault. And they even admit it now. They're like, yeah, we dropped the ball on that. Um, the, the parents were like, the mom, it said, was there every day trying to find out information and answers. And, and they kept turning her away. And then with the DNA, they said in 2003, they said it was not enough um, evidence and they didn't want, basically they didn't, whoever it was, didn't want to take a chance on trying to prosecute this person 
And they said, oh, it could have been through casual contact with the DNA. Just because he was over at the house, you know, occasionally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> people on a regular basis. We're not yeah. in a sweater. Yeah, exactly. So, so basically, um, they didn't get any success on that. The parents were furious. And what happened after 2003? In 2005, Maria Bruno was killed. And then in 2008, Michelle Murphy was attacked. So they could have stopped this, you know, but, and so it took till 2011 for, for them to be like, oh yeah, the DNA is a match for sure with Trisha. And now we'll go ahead and, and prosecute this guy. But, you know, and, and that's just the, um, you know, the victims that I talked about three, the three main victims well, you know, four, including Michelle, but the, the, the three victims that were murdered, um, there could have been up to 10, they, they, they guess, because Michael was, I mean, he's the king of stupid statements. Uh, you know, just read anything about him. Like the minute that he starts talking to any kind of law enforcement, he just starts saying all this stupid shit. Like he said something like, um, oh yeah, well, I mean, just because, uh, you know, 10 women were around me and my DNA happened to be around them. That doesn't mean I did anything. And oh. he's the one that offered up the number 10. Like yeah. that, that wasn't brought up. And then he would say stuff like when they brought him in to test his DNA. Um, I think, you know, it was in the mid 2000s. Uh, he said stuff like, hey, can I be um, can I be responsible if they find my DNA on something from 1993? Oh. And they're like, why are you, what are you even talking about? So he's just the king of like stupid statements. But at the time he thought he was just a superior person. It's just a very, very crazy, interesting case. So narcissism. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. It does sound like that. I guess so. So yeah, he is the Hollywood Ripper and, but he's behind bars. So hopefully that's where he will stay. Yes until he dies yeah 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 crazy right all right uh so i guess it is my story now oh before we get into the story speaking of weird neighbors that you might have um in that same building that i lived in we had a neighbor who decided he was going to go by the name of white chocolate he was a large white man who lived in our neighbor, uh, our <laughs> complex. Our, our, he, he lived in our complex. It was a very small complex, but right behind the Ralphs on Magnolia Street in Los Angeles. Uh, we all had studios or bachelor apartments. They were very small. There was only about maybe 30 units in the complex, maybe 50 at most. And uh, Matt decided he was going to make friends with our neighbor, White Chocolate. I can't remember what his real name is, but he had a tattoo that said White Chocolate. And that's what he went by. This guy <laughs> would dig through the dumpsters and find things in the dumpsters and decided he was going to give them to his friends as gifts. So it was very awkward because like, when you live in a studio apartment, when someone opens the door to your apartment, they're in your whole living space. So 
he would knock on our door a lot, open up the door to the living space. And like, we're like fully exposed there. He's in our whole life. I would like drive home at night and see him like digging through the trash, like full on, like in the dumpster, like oh my god, digging through the trash, like like head comes up out of the dumpster with like trash, like a fucking raccoon, you know. And I remember <laughs> like one time he like gave me this belt buckle that he found in the trash, and I was like, okay, thank you, you know. So I had. I had parties at my apartments because I used to party all the fucking time. And I had parties a lot of people of various, very, so I don't know. My party. <laughs> Wait, where are you going with that? <laughs> uh, so, you know, like in the scene of like breakfast at Tiffany's where like Holly Golightly is like throwing a party at her apartment and it's like yeah. tons of people and like nobody knows who these people are. And it's just like super crowded. Like, that was like my parties in my like studio apartment. Like there was just tons of who the fuck knows who these people are. And I didn't know. So I remember (laughs) throwing a party one time and he came into our door and I had these mirrored closets in, you know, like this, like I have here, Uh, Mm -hmm. like you typically have in uh, apartments. And I just remember I was drunk, but like, I remember him getting down on all fours and squealing like a pig and looking at himself in the mirrored closets and being like, do I look like a pig when I do this? And like, like, kind of like chasing people around, squealing like a pig on all fours. And all of us were like, (laughs) so um so that's that neighbor that i had um so anyways yeah that's a weird neighbor for sure yeah Yeah. oh yeah mine Um, was more unfortunately like mark garjulio my weird neighbor but Thankfully, nothing ever happened. So that's a much darker tone. I don't want to go there. So anyway, <laughs> sorry. I just just made me think of my weird neighbor now. But yeah, that was a long time ago. I definitely want to hear about this at some point. Ooh, some other time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. Fun. It'll just make me angry. Josh knows about it. Oh, no, that's yeah. You don't. That's fine. Whenever it's you want bad. to hear that. <laughs> Okay, another time. <laughs> um, so my murder surprise is not a murder either. Ooh, surprise. Surprise. Gosh. Surprise. Uh, so I'm not the only, you're not the only one who can pull that. So I can do it too. Uno reverse. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have never played Uno before. Wait, <laughs> I've never played Uno before, so I don't. I made that up. I like. I don't know what Uno reverses, so I'm. It's easy, I think. Anyway, I play it sometimes, but I forget the rules occasionally. All right. All right. So, <laughs> so mine is the the 
disappearance and possible <laughs> murders of Chris Kramers and Lisa Ann Froon. I got my story from my coworker, Dean. Shout out to Dean. Uh, Dean is uh, the hardest worker at our job. He makes us all look really bad. And um, it's kind of a dick move how hard he works <laughs> there because the rest of us are expected to work as hard as he does. And we can't. <laughs> We're not fucking 20. We're not 19, Dean. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, he's 21. Um, some of us are old and fat and we can't work uh, <laughs> 55 <laughs> hours and then go work another 20 hours in an escape house. So thanks for the story, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> so this happened back in 2014, uh, which actually wasn't that long ago. Um but so Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon, they lived in the Netherlands and they were both graduates of university. They had been roommates of, uh, for each other and they had also worked at a cafe together. And at one point they decided they were going to save up money. They saved up for six months and they were going to go on a vacation in Panama, but they were also going to go to volunteer. In Panama? Um, in Panama. Okay. Um, so volunteerism, I don't know if you've ever heard of volunteerism before. It's yeah. basically where white people go uh, to help out other people, but it's also like a vacation for them. And it's like, it does help, I guess, sometimes, but basically <laughs> that's what they were doing. They were doing volunteering to learn Spanish to help out uh you know uh local children they were going to teach English to local children and you know also have a vacation but you know I could get into the details of how volunteerism is actually very detrimental for um certain communities and societies and really not helpful but that is beyond the point right now so <laughs> <laughs> uh anyways they decided they were going to go to panama and they had saved up some money to do this and they uh arrived on march 14th of two of 2014 uh they had traveled from the netherlands to panama to volunteer and have a vacation now when they arrived it was apparently they arrived early due to miscommunication and their host family was not ready to host them. They were about a week early. Oh, and, um, and Chris actually said in their diary that the host family had actually been quite rude about them being early and they weren't able to accommodate them. And so, yeah, this, I hate to say it, but it all, this all sort of feels like when white people think that they're going to be accommodated for when they go to a foreign country, mm. you know, like we're going to go and things are going to turn out great. This, this also reminds me of uh, this white missionary he went to one of these remote islands to go and convert pe like people and apparently he either was taken in by their tribe 
and became one of them because like years later they saw a white uh tribe tribal's men with them in a photo but there was also like rumors that he was cannibalized but like yeah that's what happens when you go to places and you're unprepared for it so i'm not gonna like be as negative because these girls were very young they were 21 and 22 and they were going to panama to volunteer what they thought was helping out and they arrived too early the host family is not ready to accommodate them because they're not supposed to be there for another week that's a long time yeah that's not like oh you're a day early it's like you're you're dudes yeah and they think that the host family is just supposed to take them in, but they weren't ready for them. So they decide that they're going to go sightseeing for, uh, actually, they were two weeks early. So they're going to go sightseeing. Yeah, two weeks is a long time. So Ooh. they're going to go sightseeing. Uh, as of March 15th, uh, they actually uh, decided that they were going to tour around uh, they had hired a tour guide to show them around the area on April 2nd. Um, so actually they were more than two weeks early because they obviously they're going to go touring around on April 2nd. Uh, they had hired a tour guide to take them around on this day. They were around Boquette in Panama. Um, so on April 1st though, they decide that they're going to go hiking near the clouded forest that surrounded the Baru volcano, uh, not far from Boquette. And sources say that they took a local dog with them hiking. Oh, Um, Uh, in Costa Rica, we did that. When we went horseback riding, they sent a dog and it's like, that's your guide. The dog will show you where to go. So apparently. Okay, yeah. Great. Um, so they said that a local dog had gone with them, uh, while they were hiking, but it has never been confirmed. And, uh, they intended to walk around Boquette and, um, they had been seen having brunch with two young Dutchmen before they embarked on the trail. Um, some sources claim the owners of the restaurant became alarmed when the dog returned home that night and Kremers and Froome had not. So, but I'll get into that a little bit later that whether that dog was with them, whether they had met these two Dutchmen or not is kind of up in the air. So Froome's parents stopped receiving text messages from her and both women uh, had been sending text messages to their families daily uh, on the morning of April 2nd, the women missed their appointment with the local tour guide. On April 6th, their parents arrived in Panama along with police, dog unit, and detectives from the Netherlands to, to, to conduct a full-scale uh, search of the forest. And they searched for 10 days. The parents actually offered uh, $30,000 in reward for any information leading to their whereabouts. So 10 weeks later on uh, June 14th, a local woman uh, turned in Froon's blue backpack, which she reported finding by a riverbank near the village of Alto Romero. 
Now, the backpack contained two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in cash, Froon's passport, a water bottle, Froon's camera, two bras, and the woman's phones, both phones, mind you, in good condition. There was no blood on the backpack, and it had not been there the day before, and there was no water damage to the bag. So that bag showed up there and it had not floated down the river. Um, but I'll get into that a little bit in a little bit. So the woman's phones showed that just hours after beginning their hike. So a few hours after beginning their hike, someone had dialed 112, which is the emergency number uh, in Panama and 911. Uh, the first distress uh, call attempt was made by Kremer's phone around um, 4.39 p.m. And shortly after that, an attempt was made from Froome Samsung Galaxy at 4.51, 16.51, that's 4.51, right? Yeah. Yes. But none of the calls got through due to lack of reception in the area. Uh, none of the calls afterwards got through either, except for one, which got through for like two minutes. Oh. But they never really got through to um, emergency. Um, so on April 4th, Froon's phone battery became exhausted after 5 o'clock, 5 p.m., and was never used again. Kramer's iPhone would not make any more calls either, but was intermittently turned on to search for reception. Between, five, uh, between April 5th and April 11th, the iPhone was turned on multiple times without ever entering the correct, sorry, uh, between April 5th and 11th, the iPhone was turned on multiple times without ever entering the correct PIN code. Again, oh. 77 attempts to unlock the phone were made and the phone ended up becoming locked. So on April 11th, the phone was turned on and at 10.51 uh, was turned off for the last time uh, at 11.56. So basically, so this is the timeline of, so on April 1st uh, at 4.39, there's an attempted call for uh, uh, 1.12. And then another attempted call a few minutes later for 1.12. On April 2nd at 8 a.m., 8.14 a.m., sorry, there's another attempted call for 112 at uh, 6.58 uh, on Froon's phone. There is another call at 112. So they, they call and they call 112-911 for a while until basically April 5th when it is wrong attempts to unlock the phone for from April 5th to April 11th until the phone dies, basically. So they're calling emergencies and then someone has, uh, whose phone is it? Uh, Chris Kremer's phone, basically, until and entering the wrong pin number yeah. so it could be it could be lisa ann on having the phone and not knowing chris kremer's pin number yeah you know 
And that's the only phone that's still alive. So the camera was found in the backpack though. And the camera contained photos from April 1st, suggesting that the woman had, the women had taken a trail at the overlook of the continental divide and wandered into the wilderness hours before the first attempt at making an emergency call, uh, but with no signs of any, anything unusual. On April 8th, nine, 90 flash photos were taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. Okay. Apparently deep in the jungle and near complete darkness. Yeah. So eight days later, 90 fo photos are taken on their camera. A few photos show that they were possibly near a river ravine. Some sh photos show a twig, a bag, top of the rocks, and what looks like a backpack, a backpack strap and a mirror, another rock. There's like twigs with like plastic tags next to them. So in total, there were 133 consecutive photos. Um, basically the first, you know, 50 photos or so are of them having a good time in Panama. And the last 99 or 90 photos are dark randomness at nighttime, uh, eight days later after they go missing. There's one missing photo, number 509, uh, for, which is uh, which would be the photo that is between the daytime photos of them having a great time and the weird nighttime photos. A photo had been deleted. So, yeah. So the missing photo would be the decided this uh, deciding photo between the night and daytime photos. Uh, it would have been deleted, but had to have been deleted after the nighttime photos had already been taken or out. Because if it was daytime photos, then they took a photo, then they deleted it. The next photo would just replace that photo oh, as 509, okay. you know? Yes. So photos after that had to have been taken, but those were all those weird nighttime photos in like absolute darkness. So it could be a rare glitch in the phone that deleted the photo or it was deleted by a computer afterwards because no file of this actual photo was ever found on the camera no residual file or anything which usually when you delete something off of an, a digital camera uh there's going to be a residual file in there of the photo and oh. experts can usually get that encrypted photo from that you know I'm not, you know, forensic expert, but <laughs> usually they can find that photo that's been deleted. When something's deleted, it isn't gone forever unless it's wiped out for a reason, you know. So the camera had no video on it, although the camera was capable of taking video. So mm -hmm. they never had taken a video, you know which in my mind think makes me think that they didn't know that they were in that amount of trouble, you know, mm -hmm. at the time. So anyways, uh, the discovery of the backpack led to new searches along the Culbra cut. Kremer's denim shorts were found atop a rock on the opposite side of the bank 
of the tributary a few kilometers away from where Froon's backpack had been, had been discovered. A rumor claimed that the shorts were found zipped and neatly folded, but pictures of the shorts published in 2001 disproved the information. Two months later, closer to where the backpack was discovered, a pelvis and a boot with a foot inside were found. Fractures to the foot were evident. It was found it belonged to Lisa Ann. Soon, at least 33 widely scattered bones were discovered along the same riverbank. DNA testing confirmed that they belonged to Kremers and Froon. Froon's bones still had some skin attached to them, but Kremers' bones had appeared to have been bleached. Ew. A Panamanian forensic anthropologist later claimed that under, the, under magnification, there are no discernible scratches of any kind on the bones, neither of natural or cultural origin. There are no marks on the bones at all, which means they weren't probably eaten by animals oh okay because yeah they're gonna chew up and yeah rip them apart right no cause of death was ever found now a theory is that chris sustained an injury and at some point uh lost uh some point had been lost chris uh tried calling for help did not get through in an attempt to find lisa and uh, or in an attempt to find help, Lisa Ann uh, left Chris and at some point got injured too and died in or near the river and the rain and river scattered their remains. But none of this has ever been solved. You can find the photographs online and it is still so much of a mystery. Mm. But I also feel like this is a very much a cautionary tale of do not ever think that you are better than the wilderness. Do not ever think that you are have the confidence to go out and put yourself in a vulnerable situation like this. Always know the way in, the way out. Do not, this, this type of story makes me so angry because yes women should be able to go and hike in panama on their own but what if it was someone just got a broken ankle and stumbled down a path like you have no way of getting back or you know contacting anyone and this type of story always just makes me so mad because of the arrogance of man the mm -hmm. arrogance of us to like think that we can go into wilderness and have a good time and everything's going to be okay and underestimate the elements and underestimate the dangerous creatures and people that are out there that are there who might take advantage of us in a vulnerable position so you know and i'm not saying like don't go out and like take <laughs> like pat and i pat and i walked around at in paris at four in the morning you know, and like we're walking the streets of Paris in four in the morning uh, because we missed or we got off the bus too early, you oh, know, yeah. but we were like, we were in the streets of Paris. We weren't in the jungles of Panama, you know, that is a, like a little bit different. And, you know, as 
much as I have a confidence, you know, as a privileged person, like when you get into these situations, like your wealth, your privilege, that stuff doesn't matter. Like you're in, you're in this horrible situation, you know, that you, you're out of your element and I don't know, I could go off, but it's just very sad. So that is the very sad, weird and scary disappearance of Chris Kremers and Lisa Ann Froon. It has not been solved to this day. Wow. They have no idea what happened to these two. <laughs> so I hope you have nightmares about that. <laughs> uh, I know we've talked about this several times, but when me and Tia went camping that one time and that guy had- Oh yeah, oh my gosh. I forgot about that. Pat and I went camping at the place we took you, Teresa. The uh, Millard, I you remember. Millard Falls or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. the Millard Trail. Yeah. Um, I knew I felt a vibe about that place, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, literally, it is a small trail. It is one small trail up to a waterfall up and back. That's it. Yeah. Um, and so we went, we hiked up to the waterfall and we were on our way back. And we hear, help, help. And Patton. Pat and I were like dicking around. Like I was like flashing him and shit and like doing it. Like I seriously did that. And I just remember, I was like, stop. Don't do that anymore. Did you just hear that? Someone just said help. And then we hear it again, help. And so like, we like sober up real fucking quick, you know, cause we're probably drunk. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was like a really short trail to the waterfall and back. It was like 30 minutes. But at the waterfall, there's a place where you can climb up the side of the mountain. They have those like spikes in the side of the mountain that uh, mountain climbers will like tie their ropes in and go up. You know, you see those little like pegs in the side. Uh, So we're like halfway back and this guy starts coming down the trail and he's like, his hand is crooked and he's holding his arm and his hand is like crooked. Oh, he, his eyes are big and he is zoned out and, and he goes up to me and Pat and he's like, I need help. I need help. My girlfriend is stuck. We got super stoned and we climbed up the side of the mountain and then we were stoned up there and we decided we were going to come back down, but we couldn't make it down. And she got her leg stuck and she's stuck in the side of the mountain oh my god so I decided to come down the mountain and I basically fell all the way to the bottom of the mountain (gasps) and I've been coming coming down the trail looking for someone to help oh my god and his arm was clearly broken and he was in shock because he was saying like some crazy shit too you know like weird crazy shit he was saying but like from what we got out of him like that's what happened so like we didn't have any reception so we had to go all the way back to our campsite and like we sat him down on the bench and we're like we're gonna call 911 and like you know the fire department showed up and basically they interviewed him and at that point it was like out of our hands you know it's between him and the fire department oh my God. and we heard we heard helicopters at one point 
Yeah, they had to have gotten her and airlifted her out, saw, but saw, yeah, there was like there was helicopters, but oh my god, but yeah, that was like so scary. Like, Jeez. he and his girlfriend like overestimated what they could do. They were gonna climb up the mountain and then come right back down. Like, no, 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 no. If you're not a mountain climber, like, no, like, don't do that. Well, especially if you're high. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to have a buzz, but they sound like they were really out of it or something, you know? Shit. That was so scary because, like, I don't know. I've never seen someone in shock, but you could just tell that, like, his brain was not functioning properly. Like, he was just, yeah, he was not really there, you know? That's crazy. But, yeah, like, I just sat him down and I gave him, like, some water and I was just like, you need to sit now because he kept trying also like, no i'm gonna go back and you're like no he kept trying to facing the yeah he kept trying to go back <laughs> to get the girlfriend and then we're like no 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 we're not going with you <laughs> and like you need to be here to tell like the fire department where she is oh, you know Jesus. wow uh, follow yeah, us on twitter <laughs> and uh apple podcast and listen to us um this episode will be going up on our patreon the full video of this episode will be going up on our patreon so follow us on patreon if you want the extended version of the podcast and see our wonderful faces there's also going to be a lot more content coming out for patreon we have an exclusive video and interview that we are going to do later this week with um wonderful man john shaw who has set 32 world records and is a friend of ours and we're going to go and look at his weird oddities at his home because he collects for uh pawn stars he's the oddities expert for pawn stars he also collects for himself and has weird macabre stuff so we're gonna go uh yeah we're gonna go interview him in a week or two so here so that might be up in the next three weeks but it will be exclusive for patreon so please become a patron on patreon and get that extended footage uh exclusive access um but this podcast episode will go up on video and uh you will see all of the extra flubs and weirdness um on (laughs) and my cat and other things so uh please the lucifer level you will get the cat nice Um, so Please stay spooky and, uh, you know, keep on haunting. Ooh. (laughs) And insert good sign off here. Good night, everyone. Bye. (laughs) Bye. All right.